The sermon for today is titled uh, ID. ID is our sermon series title, and then the individual sermon today is called Children of Grace. Children of Grace. And the scripture comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, and I will read that for you right now. Hear now God's word. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor T. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, Pastor Steve Brown, he tells a story about the time his daughter Robin found herself in a very difficult English literature course that she desperately wanted to get out of. She sat there on the first day and thought, if I don't transfer out of this class, I'm going to fail. The other people in this class are much smarter than me. I can't do this. She came home with tears in her eyes and begged her dad to help her to get out of this class so she could take a regular English course. Her dad said, of course. The next day, he took her down to the school, and he went to the head of the English department. She was this Jewish woman and a great teacher. She looked up and saw Steve standing there by his daughter and could tell that Robin was about to cry. There were some students standing around, and because the teacher didn't want Robin to be embarrassed, she dismissed the students, saying, I want to talk to these people alone. As soon as the students left and the door was closed, Robin began to cry. Steve said, I'm here to get my daughter out of that English class. It's too difficult for her. The problem with my daughter is that she's too conscientious, so can you put her into a regular English class? The teacher said, Mr. Brown, I understand. Then she looked at Robin and said, can I talk to Robin for a minute? And Steve said, sure. The teacher looks at Robin and says, Robin, I know how you feel. So what if I promised you an A? no matter what you did in the class. If I gave you an A before you even started, would you be willing to take the class? Steve writes, my daughter is not dumb. She started sniffling and said, well, I think I could do that. The teacher said, I'm going to give you an A in the class. You already have an A, so you can go to class. Later, the teacher explained to Steve what she had done. She explained how she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could learn the material for this class. Some of you are probably thinking, I wish I had a teacher like that in high school or college. I know some of you here are, uh, we've got some seminary students, some grad school students, right? You're you're in the crunch right now. That would be pretty nice, right? And actually, Robin ended up making straight A's on her own in that class. And that story is a classic picture of grace. Uh, We are continuing our series uh, called ID. We're looking at different identities that are ours because of what Jesus has done for us. So today we're going to talk about how our identity is one being called children of grace. If you are in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you are a child of grace. And I want to remind you and retell to you today the gospel of God's grace and what that means for our lives. And also, if you do not know who Jesus is, if you're not so sure about your faith, then I'm really glad 
you joined us here this morning. So the gospel of God's grace is from our main passage today. I want to read it again, Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. The Apostle Paul writes, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is there's a righteousness given to people who believe in Jesus. And a way of looking at this righteousness is to go back to our first story. In our story, Robin received an A. And the gospel is that even though you and I are sinners, even though you and I constantly fall short of the glory of God, we get an A. God looks at us and he says, you believe in me, you believe in my son Jesus Christ, you get an A for life. Paul writes in verse 22, there is no difference. Back then, if you, you probably know, the Jewish people thought they were better off than the Gentiles. They had this great head start in history. They thought of their heritage. They thought of their Old Testament history with God. And Paul writes, no, the gospel of God's grace is that all of us are on the same footing. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference between white and black. There is no difference between Hispanic and Asian. There is no difference between men and women. There is no difference between whether you grew up in the church or whether this is your first time watching a service online. There is no difference. One of my favorite personal metaphors of God's grace is actually contrasting two popular holidays. You know what I find ironic is that we all know that Christmas is a super important holiday. It's when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the second most important Christian holiday after Easter, which we recently celebrated. On the other hand, you have Halloween. Halloween is not a Christian holiday. In fact, there are many Christians who look down upon Halloween and its origins. But have you ever noticed that Halloween is actually the more gospel-oriented holiday? Here's what I mean by that. The Christmas gifts we give people often depend on many factors. Your relationship with them, how close you are, how much you like that person. Honestly, when I was younger, I used to give out tons of Christmas cards and occasional gifts to people around me. But the older I get, I just don't do it anymore. I give Christmas cards and gifts to my family, my wife, my wife's family, and that's about it. So with Christmas, we're all like Santa Claus. We're, we're making a list, we're checking it twice, finding out who's naughty or nice. But what about Halloween? How does Halloween work? When you're a kid, what do you have to do to get some candy? All you have to do to get some candy is say three words. Trick or treat. That's it. It doesn't matter how good you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter if the person knows you or not. Nothing matters. There is no difference. Everyone gets candy. Everyone gets the same amount of candy. Everyone gets the good candy. It's not like the person giving out the candy is like, oh, I don't know you or I don't like you. Here's some candy corn. That's the bad candy. No, everyone gets good candy. We all know the holy trinity of good candy is Almond Joy, M&M's, and Reese's Pieces. But again, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets good candy. There is no difference. And what our passage is saying is that whether you've served God all your life, right? Many of us, we grew up in the church. We've been going to church since we were in diapers. That person versus someone who's Johnny come lately to Christ, all people are justified freely 
by God's grace. That's the gospel. The gospel just means good news. Christianity is not a set of rules and regulations. It's not do this and don't do that. Christianity is truly a big flashing news bulletin. It's the good news. It's this announcement that Jesus died for you and me precisely because we were helpless. We cannot get there on our own, so God stooped down to us. A great definition of grace is love that stoops down, and God stooped down to us and pulled us up. What I want to do for the rest of this sermon is I want to talk about how knowing God's grace, how knowing this gospel sets us free. It sets us free from really anything. It's really the solution to a myriad of problems when it comes to the human heart. But today I want to focus on how the gospel of God's grace sets us free from two particular dilemmas, two common issues of the human condition. And I want you to remember that first story. Robin got an A, that's the gospel. We all get an A even before the class begins. It's that good. If you understand the gospel of God's grace, then you are pinching yourself all the time. Right? It's that good. It's that amazing. The first issue we'll call performance. I want to show you a chart. This is released by the Brookings Institution based upon Gallup polls. They ask people to rate their life satisfaction relative to the best possible life for them from a scale of 0 to 10. 0 being worst, of course, and 10 being best. So the x-axis, which ranges from 15 to 95, is age. The y-axis, which ranges from 6 to 9, is the average score people gave for their life satisfaction. And you'll notice that basically from age 15 all the way up to age 50, the curve goes down. The point being that the older you get during that time frame, the less satisfied you are with your life. And studies have really seen this trend among millennials. One person put it this way about that age group. There will always be a gap between who we are and who we want to be. And therefore, imperfection leads to discouragement and discontentment. And I think that statement and graph really sum up the human condition well. We all place these expectations upon ourselves. We all have these desires that we want to see fulfilled. And therefore, because we're not where we want to be, there is unhappiness. By the way, you'll notice the older you get after 50, the happier you tend to be. I guess the theory there is that the older you get, you realize what truly matters, you adjust your expectations accordingly, uh, you also accept more of just who you are. Uh, that seems to be the wisdom that comes with age. So some of us who are getting closer to 50, we have that to look forward to. But for many of us, we struggle with this expectation game. We have this need and this desire to perform and achieve. And when we don't feel like we're performing or achieving according, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about how you feel about yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. Right? A lot of times, our self-esteem, our self-image is really dependent on how we feel like we performed that day and how we feel like we've achieved anything that day. And when we don't feel like we performed well, we feel like there's something wrong with us. We even feel this emptiness within. And this happens in various areas in our lives. Many of you are parents with young children. And the way that you feel that you perform that day as a mother and as a father, it totally affects your outlook on yourself. You, you may have days, maybe not often, but you may have days where your child is obedient and does everything you said 
and told, even told you he or she loved you, and you had no problem putting that kid down for bed, and you feel like a superstar. You feel pretty good about yourself. You're like, I'm a boss mom. I'm a boss dad. But then most of the time, your child is unruly. Right? Your child is complaining about everything. Your child is crying up a storm. And it's like a wrestling match trying to get them to go to bed. And on those days, you don't feel so great about yourself. You even question whether you're cut out to be a parent. And you think to yourself, and Pastor Keith talked about this last week, oh, that friend of mine, she's a much better mom than me. Oh, that guy, I know, I wish I could be more like him. His kids seem to really love and respect him. So it becomes this comparison game. We're always looking to compensate and medicate and make ourselves feel better because of this desire to perform. And we can stretch that out to any area of our lives. Some of us here are unhappy with our singleness. We feel like being single is a referendum on the success of our lives. Some of us here are unhappy with our jobs and our careers. And we feel like we're not as high up on the ladder as we should be uh, at this point in our lives. We're not making as much money as we should be. But here's another thing we do. We just simply bounce around in different areas until we find one that we think we're happy with our performance in. Tim Keller, he tells the story of this woman he knew. She was in her late 30s, never married. And her family believed there was something radically wrong with her because she was still single. So she wrestled greatly with shame in this idea that she had somehow failed as a woman. And because of this, she also had tremendous unresolved anger against a man that she had been dating for many years but had not been willing to marry her. So she goes to a counselor. And here's the advice that the therapist gave her. The therapist said, you have taken to heart your family's approach to personal value. That's why you're bitter against this man. That's why you feel like your life has no significance. So the therapist says, here's my solution. Get rid of that unenlightened view and devote yourself to your career. Find your worth, your sense of accomplishment in work. The woman did that. And for a short while, she felt better. But she soon realized how temporary that solution was, that it was not enough. You see, the counselor was only half right. Yes, she should not find her self-worth through romance. But looking to find her self-worth in her career, that's like jumping from one trap to another. Either way, she would be a slave to how she felt about her performance. And we all do the same thing. We bounce around like a ping-pong ball. Oh, I don't feel like a good husband. Well, at least my job and career is good. Oh, that person got promoted instead of me. Well, at least my kids obeyed me this week. Oh, I hate being single. Everyone around me is married. Well, at least I'm moving up in my career. We even do this. At least I'm more spiritual than the person next to me. It's just a ping-pong match that we play in our minds, and it never ends. And furthermore, most of us want more. Right? Most of us are, many of us are perfectionists. We try to be overachievers. So we want to be good at all these areas. We want to be deemed as top performers, A++ performers in all of these things, marriage, parenthood, job and career, money, your house, your status, how people perceive you at church, how, how much you serve at church, what your friends think about you, what your family thinks about you, how you look physically, how you feel physically. We want an A in all of those subjects. And then we get sad when we realize, oh, I'm not an A. I'm like a B plus or a B minus or a C or D or worse. 
Our struggle with perfectionism is really this. It's our attempt to define our own righteousness. It's an attempt to set up our own standards. And it's exhausting. It's draining. It's like we're trying to catch crude oil with our hands. Catch and catch, and in the end our hands get dirty, and we catch nothing. This dilemma, this quandary that we find ourselves in, it dates all the way back to the beginning of time. It dates all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, he surmised that it was restlessness that led Eve to reach for the fruit, to reach for the forbidden fruit. It's not so much a fall, as we like to call it, but it's more like a desire to reach and move forward. And when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, the Bible says that their eyes are opened and they realize they are naked. So what do they do? They try to hide. They take time to sow fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. We do the same thing today. We look at ourselves, we become restless, we become dissatisfied, so we seek to perform. We reach to improve our lot and our status and the way we feel about ourselves. One writer points out that it makes sense that Adam and Eve took time to make those clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. And that's our fig leaves today, our, our accomplishments, our successes, the subjects where we think we achieve highly. We take these fig leaves, we sew them on ourselves, and we hope that they stick. And we just keep trying and trying to make them stick, and it's a lot of work. So what does the God of grace do? We know that he punishes them. He does banish them from the Garden of Eden. But actually, the reason he's doing that, one reason, is because he's going to prepare a much better place than the Garden of Eden one day. But then we also know that God takes the time to clothe them. God does the work. God covers their shame. And I believe God wants to do the same for us today. He wants to come, he wants you and I to come to him today and let go of our need to perform. Let go of our perfectionism. Let go of the ways that we constantly grade ourselves and seek to reach certain standards. He wants some of you to know today, for the first time, and he wants many of you to be reminded again that there's nothing we have to do to gain God's love. We can simply rest in the truth. We're never going to achieve straight A's in most areas of our lives, and that's okay because the gospel of God's grace is all that we need. Emily Price, uh, she tells a story of when she started working for her husband. So her husband had just opened up his own law firm, and he asked his wife to help him. Emily had been a stay-at-home mom for five years, and she was itching to work. And she also had a law degree, so this move made sense for husband and wife. But from the moment she began, she became very anxious about her performance. And she projected that anxiety by snapping at her husband over every little thing. Fellow husbands, you may be able to relate. She began to criticize him for leaving the lid off the sugar dish or simply for breathing too loudly. Finally, he asked her. He was bewildered. He was like, honey, what's the matter? And she said this to him. She said, I'm nothing but smoke and mirrors. My writing is garbage, and you're about to find out, and I can't stand it. What's the source of such a statement? 
It's everything we've been talking about. Even with someone you're intimate with, someone who knows you the most, there's still this desire to prove ourselves over and over and over again. In fact, some of you, there are some of you today, in your marriage, there is that dynamic where you as a husband, you feel like you have to prove yourself to your wife, or you as a wife feel like you have to prove yourself to your husband. And I want to say, if you sense that in your marriage, that's a problem. Okay, marriage should be the one place where you can be yourself, where you can be silly, where you can be free, and you can be accepted. But again, because of this obsession with performance, because of this obsession with trying to gain straight A's, even our marriages end up becoming a place of performance and therefore a place of guilt and shame. Now going back to Emily Price, she just vented to her husband. I'm nothing but smoke and mirrors. You're going to find out, and I can't stand it. In that kind of situation, the temptation would be for the husband to paper things over. He could say something like, oh, no, you're good, honey. You're a good writer. You'll be great. Don't worry. But I think we know that would be temporary, and that would not work. In fact, that could actually make things worse because she would still feel she has to measure up to what he just said, measure up to his words and perform on a daily basis. But instead, he turned to her and said, Babe, we're all phonies, and whatever you do, there will be no judgment here. That's a good word. He was saying to her, Maybe you won't be good. Who knows? It's okay. There's grace, and I still love you. And that's how it is with the gospel of God's grace. God knows us. He knows us far more than we even know ourselves. Some of us, we think we know our flaws so well. No, God knows your flaws even more. God knows your imperfections even more. God knows all your issues, all your insecurities, all the standards you set and how, how much you fall short of them. He knows how we try to pretend and hide, how we try to make ourselves look a certain way to others. You see, it's like this. We all want to be known and loved. Pastor Keith, I think you actually talked about this with the friendship earlier, right? It's not enough to be loved but not known. That's shallow. To be known and not loved, well, that's our greatest fear, for people to know what we're really like and therefore reject us. But to be fully known and to be fully loved, that's God. That's the love of God. And that's God's grace toward us. God freely offers us grace. He freely offers every one of us here, regardless of how good or successful or how fulfilled you are or not, God just says, here's the gift of my son, freely available so that you can become my child, a child of grace. And that liberates us. We don't have to pretend in front of others. We don't have to perform at such a high level every day in every, every area of our lives. We are free. You know, when we talk about performance, I think that all ties into our ultimate fear. What is this performance mentality really based on? I think it's this. It's this fear that one day we will die and our lives will have counted for very little. It's that fear that when we die, when you measure up my life up, up against others, my life will pale in comparison. My life will fall short. So we go through life and we keep trying to figure out what's important and how we should spend our time, how we should do this and that, because we don't want to be that person who dies without leaving much behind. 
The great theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he faced this exact struggle. In the 1930s, as Adolf Hitler rose to power, Bonhoeffer joined a group of fellow theologians and pastors known as the Confessing Church. And with the written declaration in 1934, this church publicly denounced Hitler's anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions. For the next few years, Bonhoeffer and this church, they adopted a pacifist stance. They were seeking to oppose the Nazis through religious action and moral persuasion. But Bonhoeffer could see that strategy was not working. They needed more, so he changed course. He actually signed up with the German Secret Service in order to intentionally work as a double agent. He would pretend to be collecting information for the Nazis when he was actually helping Jewish people escape Nazi oppression. He also soon became part of a plot to overthrow and even attempt to assassinate Hitler. But during the end of the, near the end of this time, Bonhoeffer was actually spending time in America as a guest lecturer. But he was torn because he knew that he was safe in America and you know, perhaps from that place of safety, he could do much good. But he also felt great responsibility to his home country, Germany, and felt that he should get directly involved in affairs there. So he returned to Germany. In April 1943, shortly after his resistance efforts, mainly rescuing Jews, was discovered, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested and placed in prison where he would spend the next two years. Now, not unlike the Apostle Paul in prison, Bonhoeffer wrote many letters. He developed his own theological reflections. But he also, as you might expect, struggled deeply with the purpose of his life. After all, his attempt to overthrow and kill Hitler had failed. After all, he was now languishing in prison with next to no hope of getting out. It's no surprise that Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He wrote, Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Are those not questions that we ponder ourselves? Okay, these are all tied to the main question of identity. This is all tied to the question of where do we truly find ourselves? Bonhoeffer, he was wondering, am I a traitor worthy of death? Am I a promising young theologian who is wasting his gifts? Or am I a freedom fighter dying for a just cause? As he waited in his prison cell, Bonhoeffer never got the deliverance that he was hoping for. Two years after he was first arrested, Bonhoeffer was hanged on April 9th. 1945, literally just days and months before the Americans would arrive. However, in the midst of great despair, in the midst of his fear of death, in the midst of being constantly taunted by prison guards, and perhaps worse, taunted by his own insecurities, Bonhoeffer also wrote this. And I want to read this slowly so that we can all get this in response to that earlier question. He wrote, Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today? and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible, woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? He says, who am I? They mock me at these lonely questions of mine. And finally he writes, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I am thine. My brothers and sisters, I pray that all of us would know, no matter what questions haunt you, no matter what doubts pop up, 
And no matter how you fear, your life will be evaluated one day. I pray that we will all know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew. He knew ultimately, God, I am thine. He knew that because of Jesus, Jesus is the one who faced death. Jesus is the one who was completely humiliated, completely bloodied and battered. Jesus is the one who hung on the cross naked with nothing to cover up his shame. Jesus is the one who died in loneliness, abandoned by most of his disciples. Jesus is the one crying out in agony because his Father in heaven had turned his back on him. So that forever those of us who believe in Jesus have one primary identity. We are children of grace. The truth is none of us can perform to the standard that God has set. No matter how perfectionist our tendencies, no matter how well we do, no matter how hard we try, we will always fall short. And because we will always fall short, like our, our scripture says, we all deserve to die, right? Because our sin is great offense and great penalty to God. We all deserve that death that Jesus died. But the gospel of God's grace is that Jesus died that horrible death so that we don't have to. And Jesus died so that we could be set free from having to perform and even from the fear of death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. We all deserve to die, but because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, we now have eternal life. And eternal life means we don't have to fear death. Rather, we know that death, no matter how we die, no matter when we die, death is actually a portal into which we enter into eternal life forever with God. So let us reflect. Let us meditate on what Jesus did for us on the cross. You see, it's when we treasure how Jesus performed and lived that life we could never live. That's when we're reminded, yes, we have received an A. We have received Jesus' righteousness. And therefore, we no longer have to make ourselves feel better by comparing ourselves to other people. We no longer have to seek the approval of others. We no longer have to cover up our flaws and imperfections. As I invite the worship team up, we no longer have to find something in our lives to hang our hats on. We no longer have to bounce around like a ping pong ball, thinking about something that we're a success at. We no longer have to have our moods fluctuate based on how we performed in certain areas that day. And yes, my friends, we no longer have to fear even death itself. We don't have to worry about how our lives measure up in the end because we, we know that this life and this world isn't even our home. Right? That's the gospel of God's grace. Let's pray together. I read the story of a, a seminary student, and what he would do is... Every time he got an exam back, uh, before he looked at the grade uh, of the exam, he would just take out his pen and write in big letters on top of the exam, grace. He would do that every single time to remind himself that no matter how he did on the test, there was God's grace. And I want, I want, what I want you to do right now is I want you to do, try this prayer exercise with me right now. I want you to think about the areas of your lives. What areas of your lives do you seek to find your most significant sin? Is it your job and your career? Is it your salary? Is it your house? 
Um, is, it the, is it how you feel about yourself as a parent? How you feel about yourself as a spouse? How you feel about yourself as a single? Is it just uh, family, how, trying to please your family and make your family happy? Is it how you feel about yourself physically when you look in the mirror? Whatever, we all know. We all know there are areas in our lives where we constantly, and, and, our, and our self-image, our self-esteem fluctuate based on how we feel like we're doing in those areas. Today, what I want you to do is I want you to take that area. I want you to see it right now in your mind's eye. And I want you to see yourself just writing the word grace over that area. Okay, that is the word of the Lord to you today. God's grace is sufficient for you in every area. God's grace sets you free from having to perform in every area. Right now, let's just pray. Let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's just say, God, here's this area. Here's that area. God, I, 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 my mood, how I feel about myself, it really depends on how I feel like I'm doing in that area. But God has something so much better for you and me where we can just discover that we are children of grace, where we can just know that we are deeply known and deeply loved. And we don't have to keep a scorecard of all our successes and failures. We don't have to keep a scorecard in every area of our lives. But we can just come before the Lord and just know how much he loves us and how much he delights in us because of his son dying on the cross for us. So go ahead, think about those areas in your lives and just declare God's grace over those areas right now. Let's pray together right now.